thing that companies go about executing it again. They're oblivious to the change problems because to implement the agile principles, people have to behave, think differently, and behave differently. And if you don't realize that's where, in, in some of these projects, the software development is the easy part. <laughs> the getting people to think and act differently to use. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got one of my favorite authors I've read for years. I'm excited to finally have on the show, John Cotter. Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Really, John. Well, you, you've had a really big impact in the corporate world, both from your time at Harvard and your books and your consulting. And can you give people kind of just the quick overview on your career? And I really want to talk about the new book. Okay. I'm educated at MIT and Harvard and have been on the Harvard faculty forever. My my real original interest was in performance. Why I, during summer jobs, when I was still in school, I noticed both companies and individual executives, there was a huge spread between the top performer and the lower performer. And just curious about why. And that, when I started my career after my doctorate, led me to the topic of leadership. My doctoral thesis was actually, even though it was done at Harvard Business School, was on big city mayors in the United States during the tumultuous 1960s. And the spread between the most successful mayors in the sense of the impact they had on their cities and what people in their cities said about them, and the least, was gigantic. I mean, it was just astonishing. And the single biggest theme that I picked up that separated the top from the bottom had something to do, although I couldn't define it that clearly at the time, with leadership. So we go into looking more and more at leadership and what, what is it, and that starts to uh, go to uh, a recognition that leadership is not management. There's separate processes that serve different functions and that leadership management manages handles existing entities and makes them run smoothly efficiently reliably doing what you know how to do leadership is associated with change and creates those entities or helps them adapt to a changing world and that's what leads me to the topic of change so i say if leadership is somehow so important and its function has changed what's happening in this world. And we started finding the first statistics back then, more change initiatives, more strategic initiatives being launched by companies and a track record of success that was disappointing. And since then, we've been digging deeper and deeper in understanding why people struggle, why companies struggle, governments struggle even more, and what has become clear in the last decade is that rate of change, the amount of change, the volatility of change, the uncertainty that all of that creates has just been going up and up. People today treat COVID as a independent, special, isolated, once in a century thing. If you put it on a number of charts, that have to do with how much it's uh, created changes uh, or how much it disrupted things or how much uncertainty it created. All it does is it takes a, a chart that's already going up and it does a little spike, which comes down a little bit. But the, the, the notion that we're not going to have, that things are going to settle down anytime soon is just a fantasy. Things have been changing faster since the beginning of the industrial revolution and in the last 50 years in my career faster and faster and now we've got an even a greater rate and there's some good reasons and that's what we're writing about in the new book why people 
struggle with change, why organizations struggle with change, and yet nevertheless, why it is possible to treat change as an opportunity-rich environment and actually achieve much more than you would in a more stable, secure situation. And there's no question in anybody's mind, I don't think, that the world needs a lot more kind of spectacular change that gives us great results. The number of problems we have is is countless. I love it. So, John, when you think about this idea of being able to embrace change as a good thing, instead of just seeing it as a bad thing and the opportunity to to em- embrace it more, I mean, you think about the entrepreneurial aspects of how much entrepreneurial progress is made in times of change because the incumbents are vulnerable, you know, because if they can't get over their bureaucracies that, you know, change often brings opportunity. I'm guessing, is that kind of the direction you're going with it or, or how can change be the advantage? Well, entrepreneurs, really, really successful entrepreneurs have a tendency to be opportunity oriented, not threat and survival oriented. And indeed, they are much faster at both spotting new opportunities that are caused by change than large established players that are so focused on running the machine, if you will, that the eyeballs are too often pointed inward and are driven by routines and policies and rules and strategic plans that are four inches thick, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) Yeah. So there's no question. See, one of the reasons, to go back to the question, the interesting question, I think, of why do people struggle with change? There there are at least two fundamental reasons. I mean, the, the third is, it's going faster, and of course, when anything goes faster or differently, you struggle with it a little bit until you get to know it. But that explains a very small percentage of the problem. Human beings were basically our hardwiring comes from a long, long time ago. And in the last decade in particular, and this is one of the things that has fascinated me and I've been studying in the last five years, kind of brain research, which is done with at a level of sophistication that didn't exist 20 years ago, much less 100 years ago or 200 years ago, has found that the most central hardwiring system we've got in us is oriented toward helping us survive. And that means it's like a radar system that's looking for threats, not opportunities, threats. And as soon as it sees something it perceives as a threat, chemicals go out, uh, blood flow increases, oxygen to blood, we get ready to run away or to kind of beat down the threat. And our mind focuses, you know, creativity goes to zero because the mind goes like that. And when it works well, we eliminate the threat and then it all kind of calms back and resets at equilibrium. Now, that's not the only building system. We've got another one that is uh, more oriented toward helping us thrive, which is opportunity-focused. Its radar looks for opportunities. When it sees it, it sends out a different set of chemicals that kind of raises our energy and produces emotions that are less like anxiety or anger or humiliation and more like passion and excitement and the like. And as long as we're able to take steps that demonstrate clearly that we're marching in a direction and making progress toward that opportunity, that energy level can stay up for a long period of time. Unlike the survival energy, which tends to burn very hot, but it stresses you out after a relatively short period of time. So, People's lean towards survive, not opportunity. And that's why the world isn't necessarily filled with entrepreneurs. It's also why 
individual people, including high-level executives and some CEOs in prominent companies, are not handling change particularly well. It's not that they're stupid. It's not that they can't intellectually understand that the world is kind of changing and that as a CEO of a company, you've got to make adjustments to kind of grab the opportunities. But unconsciously, their built-in system isn't leaning in that direction. And if they're not aware of that, and they don't kind of consciously and intentionally overcome their own instincts, it's not good. The second piece is modern organizations, which are really only 150 years old. What we live in and work in today, they're the product of the Industrial Revolution. And they also are built for reliability, efficiency, and survival much more than they're built for innovation and change and agility. So they bias also in that direction. And unless you're aware of that and you're aware of how you can add something that strengthens the, if you will, the change muscle, the innovation muscle, the agility muscle, you just don't, the organization just throws up barriers constantly toward your attempt to adapt quick enough to a changing world. And that's affecting lots and lots and lots of people today and producing outcomes that nobody wants. Um, nobody wants. You know, I, I've heard a bit about the science on the, the threats and the, you know, the thalamus tells the amygdala to jump dump cortisol and adrenaline into the bloodstream and that kind of stuff. But I, I hadn't heard much about the creativity side. Where would, if, if I want to dig deeper into that, are there any researchers or books or what, what's, where would I look to learn more about that, you know, the creativity and those chemicals and what's happening there? Well, I, the easiest answer to that is we've got a big note section in the new book. Okay. Start with some of the specific references there. No, because it, trying to quote references, you know, yeah. What? Uh, no, no, that's great. Well, I'm an audiobook guy, so yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I've listened to I've listened <laughs> to your your other books over and over. Mo Leading change is my is is the one that really got me. How many books have you written total? Good question. I think the new one is either 22 or 23. Okay. And, you know, with some pretty with some pretty big accolades, I think, you know, I'm trying to remember who it was that named Leading Change in the top 25 management books ever written in history. But Time Magazine. Time Magazine. Time yeah. Magazine was uh, on top, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Especially when you start counting up how many books get written every year, let alone in the last 50 years or something, right? So, so congratulations on that title. Do you know how many, do you have, do you know how many copies you've sold total? World between. If you, if you, if you, we did a calculation last year. And if you don't count China, and the reason you don't count China is the figures are all phony. Okay. <laughs> okay. So move China out of it. And we've sold over 5 million books. Wow. Put that in perspective. The average published author, fiction or nonfiction, in his or her lifetime, in all their books, all languages, all edition, sells 1,500 books. It's wild. So if you're trying to feed your family, this is not necessarily the best <laughs> industry to be in. High probability. Well, you want to talk about, I mean... Um, an author that I love who we had on recently was Richard Koch, the guy who wrote the 80-20 principle. He used to be at BCG and Bain and started LEK, right? I mean, you talk about the that that wide distribution. I mean, as you started off the episode today, talking about the variance in performance can be so wide, right? When you When you think about writing, what do you think it is or what advice would you have for someone who who wants to write and and have it really have an effect? What, or I guess I'll open it up to any of the any of the principles that you'd have for authors. But what would be one of your best pieces of advice for nonfiction business writer? Well, it never hurts to start with uh, asking yourself, looking in the mirror, and saying, "Why do I want to write?" 
and being honest. Yeah. Because some people do do it for, I mean, the money is the number one thing. Some people are doing it to market something else. Uh, a lot of people in consulting do that. And some people do it because they have loved writing since they were in, you know, high school. And some people do it because they see it as a means to influence events and people in ways that lead to better results. The better you have a sense of what's deep inside of you, that probably helps a lot at the beginning. Writing about anything except what you are really interested in, I think I personally find is really tough. I've never written a book that I wasn't deeply interested in that top, in that subtopic at that time for some reason, and that I didn't do some pretty heavy-duty research, which wasn't a pain. I didn't see it as, oh, I have to do the research before I do the book. It was like, ooh, I get to do this research. This is great fun. I can still remember all the way back to my doctoral thesis running around. Here I am, what? 23 years old, interviewing business leaders, politicians, newspaper people, all, you know, 20 years older. Oh, the great one was Eric Johnson, who was the mayor of Dallas. He helped from Texas Instruments. And when he retired, he was elected to uh, uh, the mayorship of Dallas for two terms, did a great job. And the guy, when I met him, I'm 23, he's 70. And just sitting around in an office listening to this guy was fantastic. So I think the more that the process itself feels like it's fun as opposed to, oh, I have to do this to get around to. And I can still remember a colleague of mine at Harvard who we were talking about books. And he says, I said, you know, congratulations on the work that you've done. And he says, well, it, it's always um, a pleasure to have a book out. It's not a pleasure writing. And he was probably 30 years older than I was. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't think so. I think, <laughs> I, I, I think if the process of writing is not interesting, it shows through to the reader. The reader kind of unconsciously gets the feeling that this guy was in pain when he was trying to write this thing. And this is making me uh, feel uh, badly. Uh, and that isn't a great way to get people to listen to or read and then act on your own hard work, which you like, and passion and excitement needs to come through in a book. And if it can't, it's going to limit. You know, that's solid advice I, i'm interested you know I, i'm an audiobook nerd can't wait for the new mm -hmm. one to come out on audible but but thank you for sending the galley copy over probably the, <laughs> uh, so i can at least peruse a little bit while i while i wait for the audio edition to come out but i think what i would love to start with if it's okay is this this chapter i thought it was chapter two here let me double check no chapter four mm -hmm. digital transformation that is truly transformational you know, th this is fascinating to me. Will you start with maybe diving into a bit about what that chapter is about, and then I've got some questions for you? Okay. It's about digital initiatives, virtually all of which, if you look at the paperwork behind them in the company, they're designed to make changes in how the company is doing business to respond to some technological or customer changes and needs out there. Uh, so transformation is often used because the changes are often significant when referring to digital legitimately. The problem is most of the digital projects that I have seen over the last 40 or 50 years my first paying job was during the summers when I was at MIT doing programming in Fortran for an IBM 7074 computer. Oh, really? So I got a deep digital background. 
Most digital projects, including the ones going on today, don't come close to achieving the upfront aspirations. There was a time, I can remember, when all the CEOs I knew hated digital because it was a black hole for money. They were never on time. They disrupted operations and produced problems that the CEO had. It's not as bad today because CEOs are more digitally sophisticated than they were 20 years ago or 30 years ago. But nevertheless, the fundamental problem, I think, is that for digital to fulfill its promise in helping you evolve and take advantage of opportunities, it has to be... Obviously, you need to have some highly capable, elite digital guys involved helping to drive this thing. But you don't want to just give it over to the digital guys and say, this is your project, you do it. The best projects or initiatives gather up a following from the beginning outside of the digital world. The internal customers, sometimes even the external customers of the product, whatever it is, are involved. And they eventually not only help it be accepted, but executed and implemented faster, people trained up faster. The product itself is better because there's constant interaction between user and developer, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot, like a lot of change, it, it, it's not just the elite few, it's the kind of diverse many that create the leadership and the mass and the force that can change organizations and people that don't lean toward change. So... Digital, we're going to see more and more and more projects, and far, far too many of them uh, are over budget, too slow, don't fulfill uh, the requirements of the uh, users to the degree they could, and it's because they're driven by the elite few digital guys. Now, I love this idea of that feedback loop and, and getting everybody involved instead of handing it off to the digital guys. Like, you know, I started off, we, we were talking the other day and, you know, I started off in M&A at Citigroup in the early 2000s and they didn't want anything touching the internet because all the lawyers thought everyone just gets sued for anything, right? And then, <laughs> you know, years later running a private equity fund in Canada and, you know, equity crowdfunding wasn't legal yet. It was It was still illegal for private deals, you know? And so here we are today, and now equity crowdfunding is legal. But, you know, my, my partners and I, you know, we, we come from more like finance backgrounds and, and that type of entrepreneurial backgrounds. My, my one partner's owned commercial real estate for, since 1985, you know, right? And so we're in this place where we're really excited for Greystoke Investments because we can sell our cash flow fund on the internet. I can advertise it right here on this podcast. It's not illegal like it was for 80 years until a couple of years ago, right? <laughs> Currently, I can only sell to accredited investors because it's a 506C, mm-hmm. but you know, we hope to get Reg A plus maybe by next year or something if we can. But we, I feel like the change is much easier for us because, because we don't have a lot of infrastructure and bureaucracy to overcome. But we do have, you know, two and three decades of experience from my partners and a number of our staff. We've got, we've got some younger people, our analysts and stuff, maybe you don't have as much of the old version. But, but like we have repeated conversations about, okay, we need to think about ourselves less like traditional private equity or less like a, you know, a, an open-ended cash flow fund. We need to think about ourselves more like a fintech company. And this need, they need to be able to like build complete trust with us just off the videos and getting their questions answered at graystokeinvestments.com. And, and like we need to turn Greystoke's investment, graystokeinvestments.com is our number one salesperson. You know, we are all supporters of sending people to the website. You know, every time somebody asks a question, putting a frequently asked question back up there, you know, so it can be done repeatedly. But it is, it's so easy to do the way we, we've always done things or, you know, my mentor slash partner, John, who's, you know, he's got some institution, you know, he's got some habits having done this since 1985, right? 
Any, right. any advice? Well, yeah, sure. Number one, whenever you're talking to him or your other colleagues who are kind of have some habits, as you say, think about how you talk to them and how you frame the issues and ask yourself, is there any way that this could inadvertently set off the survive system in these guys? Is there any way that this could be picked up by their unconscious, not their conscious, they're good guys, as a threat? If you do, and if the answer is yes, maybe stop and think again. Is there a way to make the same point, right? (laughs) Well, I'm thinking of a conversation this morning. We we just tied up... We just tied up this multi-million dollar beachfront property in Hawaii. We're really excited about it, okay? And just because of the zoning that's in place, it, it has really, we don't need to do a lot to it to, you know, probably five times the earning potential of the property, right? And uh, we're very excited about it, but it is a little shorter time frames than we usually like to deal with. And we're having this conversation, oh, we got we to gotta get the website updated. We got to get this ready. And my one partner's like, oh, that's... That's way too much work to take the online payments. Like, just call, just call your wealthy friends and get the money. Like, don't let's not fix the website to be able to take ACHs online. And he's not wrong. Like, this has a short fuse, and it's very high demand area, and we're getting it at a great price, and and we can't afford. You know, we we really should do everything we can not to miss it. But it's but then there's this other side of me, like, yeah, but if we never. If we never start taking the money through the website, we're never going to get to start taking the money through the website. And so there's this, this like push and take of like, man, it's really easy to just call these high net worth people we've built relationships with for years and just raise the money the way, the way we always have, except that there's so much a bigger offer and opportunity if we can become a di- you know a digital first fintech company. So there's that like, do we deal with the fire? You know, like you got to deal with the fire, but how do we how do we carve out enough time for the long term too? Right, and everybody has some variation on that kind of a push and pull. But the problem is the dealing with the situation as we have always done it, in which I, if I'm involved, know how to do it. It doesn't work. I don't start worrying about what about, what about, what about, what about, because I've been down that path so many times. And so unconsciously, my brain starts thinking up all the reasons why we should do it my way and not your way. And and the smarter I am, by the way, the more dangerous I am (laughs) in this situation. Yeah. Because the brain just spins around and comes up with an excellent uh, argument. So one thing you can do is, is think about, again, how can I not accidentally activate the Sarad threat piece? And what can I do to activate the opportunity thrive piece? And sometimes that doesn't take you anywhere because it's complicated and it's hard to figure out. But sometimes that simple little idea and insight takes you a slight digression to the right or left and you get a different result. Another way, by the the way, on habits, you talk about habits. The way habits get broken um, more often than not is less by somebody, me trying to argue you out of your habit than it is by me seeing if I can get myself or you or somebody else to do something different than the normal habit, knowing that it's going to get a positive result in the short term, not three years from now. Because that cycle of kind of a new way of doing things that's not the habit that gets a clearly better result tends to start changing in small ways, people's minds, 
and it tends to draw other people into maybe we're onto something here who do things in a new way, which produces more results. And this kind of cycle goes from results to new ways of thinking to new habits. And ultimately, in a, in a corporate sense, you can change culture that way. Because group habits is one way of thinking about uh, culture itself. So uh, a second thought. No, that's great. I mean, I do have to give us credit. This time we didn't make a deck. I mean, the, the famous investment <laughs> pitch deck. We are. We're just doing it on the site. So we're making progress and then hopefully we'll raise money from that and that'll be our little reinforcement and we can just we can just double down on it. Well, my next question is actually related. One of the other kind of, you know, high high cash flow opportunities we can pay our quarterly checks to our investors out of is um buying assisted living facilities that are mm -hmm. they're too small for the big guys in New York to care about, but the, you know, they're still a few million bucks so most individuals can't normally buy them themselves, right? It's kind of that no man's land where we're not finding a ton of competition. So we're getting them at, at good prices, mm -hmm. but you know, it's great. We, they've got income in place. Maybe they've been there 15 years, but we are really interested in, in your chapter six here, this culture, culture change that helps you adapt is, you know, we want it to start having this culture across all these facilities that, that we're kind of doing a roll up and, and really have this like very like, I don't know the best way to describe it, but this very like people first, you know, that that industry is kind of famous for having too few staff and, you yeah. know, treating patients like a number and especially in the big boxes. And so we really want to double down on this. Hey, like there aren't 300 people in this facility. There's like 12, there's like 16. Like we really can treat your mom like a real human being, not like a number. We really want to double down on that. But, you know, there's going to be people with habits of how they did things for 15 years and some facilities we already know are better than others. Right. So can you, can you talk to us a little bit about chapter six and can we see if there's any applications to me buying these facilities and their staff? Sure. Um, most people who put together work roll-ups or whatever, by buying something, pay far too little attention to the culture issue. And if, 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 especially if they're buying entities that have been around for a while, so they end up with 10 or 100 or whatever different mom and pop cultures. And as long as they can operate independently, it's not a necessarily a disaster, but you're not getting any kind of uh, group synergy out of it. And more importantly, you can't really run these things independently. I mean, you, you, you want to get some economies of something uh, out of it. And the way you do it is you just say one of the strategic pillars of why we're doing this is we're going to create a, an organization with these individual units that we bought up that has a common culture and a smart, strategically smart culture. And we're going to do it intentionally. And we're going to recognize something about how culture actually is built intentionally, which is not necessarily what people intuitively would think. I mean, the, the, the general intuitive methodology that's used by companies, consulting firms too, is... The top guys get together with, you know, an internal person or a consultant and they've got a flip chart and they say, what should the culture be? And they write it all down. And then they turn it over to a communications person who kind of sends it out to everybody, basically sounding like this is your culture. Start behaving that way. And surprise, surprise, it doesn't work. In some cases, it even produces a negative reaction like you know what why are you telling me this this is not my culture we're different than this what's your point so what you do is put together a group of people who are inherently interested in this question who, who kind of get it who aren't saying culture what from uh, multiple facilities not just one, 
and talent. You know, you guys, if you if you'd like to, we would love it if you provide leadership in building the kind of culture that can execute our strategy that can make a new form of assisted living that is better for people than what exists out there. And we think this is perfectly possible if we can do a number of things, including building this culture around us all. And then give them a little bit of advice around you got to learn how to become a, a team, even though you're not reporting to each other. Two, communication is very, very important. But culture doesn't get built by just talk. It gets built by, again, that cycle of action gets better results, celebrate it, feedback, more people hear about it, more people join it, habits, mindsets gets changed, habits gets changed, and eventually get the culture, which will take some time. And if you can kind of find a group and build some sense of urgency. Make sure they're diverse in terms of levels. Don't just take the top person in every facility, but get some people up and down the hierarchy because they have different connections, data, everything else. And if you give them or help them clarify what the opportunity is and what the vision is for, for and strategy for achieving that opportunity, and then can keep your hands off, even though you're giving them clear guardrails. you got to stick within this, you know, pretty big tent. Then resist. Every time you see them do something that you don't like, coming down on them, you know, in a controlled way, and they can get that cycle going, uh, you would be surprised uh, what can be achieved. It'll take... Sometimes, this isn't, you you don't build cultures among organizations in two months, but so what? Along the way, you'll have lots of successes. There'll be a positive atmosphere growing, and pull it off, everybody wins. Well, I I really love the advice about celebrating the wins there. I mean, that just makes so much sense, that feedback loop. Maybe my one question that I would have is thinking about the urgency factor. You know, we're we're buying some pretty great facilities. That's where we're buying these ones, not other ones. And yet, and yet there's still room for improvement and there's definitely room for, you know, because there's these these three over here and these three over here. And you know, like you know, we're we're combining organizations where, you know, those staff have never known each other before because they weren't they weren't they weren't the same company before. So there are some needs for some cohesion. But I guess my thought is like, we're actually getting some really great people, but we still think there's another level to go up. So, so the urgency isn't the typical like, oh, oh no, we're in trouble. Like we're buying places that are like right. the, the num you know, have the number one reputation in town and stuff like this, right? right? And yet there's still that next level to reach to. So I'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on urgency when it's not like a business imperative of we'll go out of business if we don't do this. Right. It's just that there's more that's possible. The most extraordinary cases that I've either studied or been a part of with the consulting firm in which people have accomplished so much more than they thought was possible. I don't think there's one of them. I'd have to stop and think for a minute that started as a, turnaround situation Mm. as a burning platform. So the notion that you need that to be able to get the urgency to do something great, the facts do not bear that. And I think the reason this is a supposition is the problem with the burning platform, platform is it goes back to it's far more likely to ignite energy on the survive side than on the thrive side. So the name of the game is, I mean, I can remember a speech that was given by a guy. And he wasn't the CEO, but he was the number two or three guy in a situation uh, in which over two or three years, it's amazing. I mean, totally amazing what they accomplished in transforming that business. And he, it, but, but the business wasn't broken. 
they were by some standards, not all, number one already in their box, right? And he talked about performance gaps versus opportunity gaps. Mm. He says, you guys don't have a, he said, most of the businesses I've dealt with in my lifetime have had some performance gap. In other words, you're, you're here, you could be here. You guys have been amazing. <laughs> you, you know, you could be here, you are there, and you've done this for five or six years. And every one of you should, deserves, you know, a pat on the back and a bottle of champagne and more for this. But there's another dimension, and I call it the opportunity gap. And the opportunity gap in most, in a lot of places, is, is significant. That is to say, the difference between what the opportunities that they are successfully capitalizing on, which always involves new stuff, innovation, change, and what are possible out there, given the nature of the context and the industry of the year end. And you guys do have, like everybody, frankly, so don't get me wrong, this isn't a put down. You've got an opportunity gap, and that's fantastic. That's not bad. <laughs> and let me tell you what we can do with them. You're going to have to figure this out, not me, but I can just offer them. You, you can imagine the speech. T- tell me again got, what company he was from? No. Okay. I mean, th- th- this would have been a mid-sized company. So, you know, five, less than a billion, maybe five or 700 million. And it, no, it's not coming. To don't, it's don't US me. based, but it's not coming. Sorry. That, that's great. <laughs> but I mean, that's encouraging to me to hear that. So, so I appreciate it. I, I feel like we're going to need, we're going to need to do more interviews, John. I got too many questions for you. So I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to balance because I want to go deeper, but I want to ask the next one. Okay. We're just going to skip. Maybe we can come back. We're going to skip. I want to talk about chapter eight, agile methodologies that build sustained and scale, scalable agility. You know, it's, it can almost be a buzzword these days, especially for anybody with oh, any yeah. kind of tech relation. And yet those folks that do it well I mean, they just run circles around the competition. Can you can you talk about, well, just talk about Chapter 8 for a minute? Sure, sure. For those, if there are anybody, any of your viewers that are unfamiliar with that, it's a set of principles originally for software development. And the principles make sense in a rapidly changing world, in a stable world, They don't necessarily make sense. And they have a lot of face validity. Example, instead of giving a blueprint to your tech guys and say, this is the software we need, and they go off in a cave and come out of the cave six months later and hand it to your sales force because it's a a sales software product. And the sales force looks at it and says, we didn't want this. You don't understand our customer. And by the way, we needed this three months ago and the whole thing blows up. You make sure that the sales guys are involved with the product development team from the beginning. And you don't wait to to finish a project. As soon as you get a minimum viable product that can be tested, you roll it out and try it in some place where the risks are appropriate. You learn from that. You feed it back. So it's a lot more agile. You move left, right, up based on real data. The problem with agile is not the concept per se. It's the, the way that companies go about executing it again. They're oblivious to the change problems because to implement the Agile principles, people have to behave, think differently and behave differently. And if you don't realize that's where, in, in some of these projects, the software development is the easy part. <laughs> They're getting people to think and act 
differently to use the, that process and to create the new software is the hard part. So they're focusing on the wrong problem. Again, they slide back to a small elite digital crew that they put them in charge. They forget about the other people that are going to have to be use it or change what they do as a part of their jobs and might get defensive, etc. And and ultimately, it's not even agile principles that are so important these days. It's agile, agile capital A principles, capital B. It's agility, small a. And we all need more. In a faster moving world, you've got to be able to turn left, right, you know, stop faster. And that applies not just to high tech and software, it applies to everything. It can apply to elder care, which nobody thinks of as a high tech product. It can apply to, and agility comes from the marriage of a methodology that is usually found in really successful entrepreneurial situations to a high-quality, well-managed, larger firm. And I call this a dual system, which every organization has at one point, usually early in their history, until they get big and the more formal hierarchy and the policies and the processes and the da-da-da-da just kill off the entrepreneurial leadership network-driven innovative part, but you can uh, grow that back, again, if you approach it intentionally and do it right by some known change principles, and through that, develop agility that helps you not only in software development, but in anything, in manufacturing, in customer relations, in in your strategic planning work, anything. And people need that these days. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Makes me think about, you look at how somebody like Amazon wins when they make you feel like their website is personally helpful to you because the suggestions are actually things you would want suggested or, right? Instead of the, none of us really like the one size fits all. And so that agility or responsiveness of, you know, being an employee and feeling like the company cares about me instead of the employee cares about my job title or customers, anybody, right? You know, I think as we kind of wind down here, one of my favorite questions to ask people is, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? What's one of the best pieces of advice that I ever received? Okay. I... Uh, when I was an assistant professor at Harvard Business School, I had this truly amazing educator who sat in on all of my classes because we were collaborating, developing a new course. So here I am, 24 years old, and I've got a guy who, along with five other people, had his picture on the cover of Time magazine once. And an issue called Great Teachers or Great University Professors. And one day, I don't remember why, but I said, I, in trying to make a point, I brought the whole discussion back to me and the way I was dressing. And the implicit in it, was a, a non-compliment compliment, the expensive suit I was wearing. And, and that was... And after class, he sits me down and he says, first of all, the class was very good. It was very good. You know, we, we achieved this, 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 this. He said, one thing, that bit about the reference to your clothing and the way you did it, Oh, God. 
and said, John, this isn't about you. This is about them. It's about educating those young men and women to go out and do something useful in this world because they're more competent, more motivated, because they've developed some standards and some principles. This isn't about you. Be very careful in making references to yourself that are unconsciously, at least, can be interpreted as you brag. It takes away from the whole thing. And I remember feeling at the time enormously embarrassed because this is an incredible guy. It's like, oh. but I thought about it and, and I concluded that I was one lucky guy, that I would have a, a person like this, not only sit in on my class, but would be willing to offer wisdom that's straightforward. And the more I thought about the implications of this point, I think it affected my teaching. And I have forever since held myself to a different standard of kind of, humility isn't quite the right word, but it's in the neighborhood. And I think it served me very well. So there's one. Yeah, such great advice. I think it's a perfect place to end. But everybody, please go to Amazon, go get your own copy of Change, go to Cotter Inc., see what John's company does. John, this has been great. Thank you for making so much time for us. Oh, no, this was fun. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye, everyone.